mention the word revelation, everybody's mind immediately goes to future. Or I say that most everybody's mind immediately goes to to future tense and primarily um, consider Revelation to be about the tribulation. While it is true there's a whole bunch in Revelation that is about the tribulation, the Bible told us the purpose of the book from the very first words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, the word apocalypse does not mean, um, it really doesn't have anything to do with it with hard times, although we use it synonymously with something catastrophic happening. Apocalypse literally means to unveil something. And the Bible told us in the very first words of the book of Revelation that this is the revelation or the apocalypse or the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, there are dispensations of history that God worked um, different ways and different people. There was the dispensation of the Jewish era that when, when God gave the law and worked through the Jewish people and now we're living in the church age. Um, Jesus came to do, when he came, he came to do a very specific work, to die on the cross for our sins. But that was not the end of his ministry, that was the beginning of his ministry. And, um, and he still has work to do. So Revelation is uh, primarily uh, tells us who Jesus was, um, who he is. Now we have a lot of other information about who Jesus was. All of the Gospels and all of the Epistles tell us about the work that Christ did. Um, I think primarily what Revelation does is tells us who Jesus is and what he's doing now and what he will do um, during the tribulation and the eternal kingdom. So it is the revelation of Christ, past, present, and future. The first chapter is primarily the past. The second and third chapters are pri primarily the present. And chapter 4 through chapter 22 deal with uh, future, what, who Jesus is and what he will be doing um, in the future. Um, I happen to believe that Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are the most important chapters in the whole book. And, um, and I'm probably going to get through chapter 4 and maybe chapter 5 on Sunday morning. I'm not, I haven't made up my mind yet. And then we're going to shift the study to a Wednesday night. Um, because it just gets a lot, a lot of, there's a lot of symbolism and all involved that I can't really work out and that I'm not real sure about in the tribulation. I don't think necessarily that the church even has a lot of business or need to study the tribulation because I don't plan to be here. Um, I don't believe we're going to be here during the tribulation. So um, that's primarily for them folks who miss the coming of the Lord and the rapture. But chapter 2 and 3 are the church age. That's where we live. That's where we are living. That's where, the, that's where we have been for the last 2,000 years. And, um, and, and, and this is the most important part of the book of Revelation to me um, because we're living where Jesus says, I'm in the midst of the church. That was the vision that John had. I am in the midst of the church. They are my people. They are my bride. They are my body. They are the citizens of the kingdom that I have left on this earth to be my representatives to take my gospel into the ends of the earth so that all the world can hear and believe and be saved. And so um, this is where we live and Jesus is in our midst and he, is, he has given his word to messengers. I know the King James uses the word angels. Um, but it literally means messengers. And so I believe these letters were handed off not to an angel from heaven, but to a messenger to, to take to the church, um, which would be the pastor of that church. 
Um, there are four common phrases that we're going to read over and over as we go through these letters. Um, the first being, unto the angel write, and that is that God has given his word to us. It has been written down and handed off to the church for us to take instruction and correction and rebuke and, and encouragement and um, give us um, the equipment that we need to be who he has called us to be. I know thy works. That's important for our identity. That's important for us to know who we are and for the world to know who we are. And, and I need to say this, that, that Jesus knows who we are. And sometimes we got misguided ideas of who we are, both negative and positive. Sometimes we think that we're something that we're not. And sometimes um, we think of ourselves um, in a different way than Christ actually knows that we are. There's hypocrisy involved in our life. He that hath an ear, we have the freedom to receive or reject whatever he says. He is not forcing us to comply, um, but he lays his truth out before us, uh, us and gives us the, the, the responsibility and the opportunity to, to hear it and to believe it, to hear it, receive it, and act upon it. And then to him that overcometh, those who trust and obey receive the reward. So why do I believe the church age is the most important? Why do I believe Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are the most important for the church? Um, because what you do with Jesus in the church age um, will determine, and it will determine um, your position with Christ for all eternity. And you will either be with him in the church age and with him for all eternity or you will be without him in the church age and without him for all eternity. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are written to the church. And if you, if you want to be a part of Christ's eternal plan for the church, then what you do with him right now matters. Because when the church age ends and tribulation begins and then the eternal future, I don't believe the church is going to be on earth during tribulation. I think the, uh, that everybody who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be raptured out of this world one day. And we'll cover that when we get there. But what you do with Christ today in the church age, while you have opportunity, will determine your position with Christ forever. We read the letter to the first church last week to Ephesus. I'm not going to go back and preach that again, but that's the living but not loving church. They had, they had their head in it, they had their hands in it, but their heart was not in it. Jesus said, you've been doing a lot of good things, and I appreciate all the work that you're doing. I commend you um, that you're doing all these things, that you're laboring and that you're enduring, and, and, and he commended them for that. He commended them for hating the things that he hated. Specifically the deeds of a group of people who claim to be Christians but who were living lives of dabbling in idolatry and sexual immorality. And Jesus said, I'm commending you that you hate the same things that I hate. But, but, the, but the warning that he had for them is that you're serving me with your head and your hands but not your heart. You left your first love. Your love for me is growing cold. Um, they had some good pastors, Paul, Apollos, Timothy, John. That church was doing good. Um, they had been doing good. They were doing good, but Jesus, he, he, his word to them was that you need to correct this business of working with just your head and your hands and not your heart. Get back to the heart of worship. Get back to a place where you do what you do um, for me because of what I have done um, for you. And, um, and, and, and before we dive into this second letter, um, these were actual churches that, that were in existence at that particular time. But the application can be made to any church at any time, to any Christian at any time, and they may also be representative of periods of history. Um, but today's letter is to the church at Smyrna. And here's the title that I'm going to give it. They were poor and persecuted, but they were also righteous and justly rewarded for that. Revelation chapter 2 verse 8, the Bible says, And unto the angel, or unto the messenger, 
or unto the pastor of the church at Smyrna, write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Just a little bit about Smyrna. Ephesus, we have a lot more information about in the Bible because there was actually a letter written, the letter to the Ephesians. That was written to the church at Ephesus. Let me tell you just a little bit about the church at Smyrna. They were a commercial center of the Roman Empire. They had a seaport there. Um, Alexander the Great built the city and the Romans overthrew the Greeks and the Romans made it a primary commercial center. It was also a center of, there was a huge amphitheater there. You can go back and look, archaeology and um, history, and you can find a lot of this information for yourself. There was a huge amphitheater there, seat 20,000 plus people. And uh, one of the things that went on in that, in that amphitheater was a worship of Caesar. Caesar was to be hailed as a god. It was compulsory. If you were a citizen of Rome, if you lived in that city, it was required of you that you come and pay homage, that you come and pay tribute, that you come and pay worship to Caesar. The Christians that were living in that area at that time who would not bow to Caesar were marked as traitors. And part of the punishment that sometimes they would receive for being marked as traitors when they were identified is that they would be put on racks and pulled apart, stretched until their limbs pulled out of their sockets. Again, all you got to do is take a little bit of look at history and you'll find this out. I hear a, a, a ringing noise. I don't know where it's coming from. I can shut this off if I need to. I, I see people looking around like, where's that coming? You still there? All right, it's gone. The devil's gone. They were dipped in oil. John the Apostle may have been, in fact, tortured by the Romans by being dipped in hot oil and in exile to the Isle of Patmos. They were torn apart by lines in the Colosseum. I hear it again. You, you would expect a church that was enduring this kind of stuff. Daniel's day would have said, I'm just going to go along to get along 
to escape the punishment that might come with me being disobedient to the powers that be. The church of Smyrna is living in a bad place. They live in that, they're living in a, in a bad time, but Jesus didn't have anything but praise. He had nothing but praise for them. There was no condemnation of this church. There's no criticism of this church. There's no correction of this church. All Jesus had for them was praise for who they were and where they were standing and how they were enduring. Um, he, he, he said from those first words, I know I know who you are. I know that you're experiencing tribulation. I know that you have poverty, but you are richer than you know. Um, I always think it's interesting in these letters. And, and, and the first thing Jesus does in every one of these letters is to pull the church's attention back to himself. In, in every one of these letters, he first identifies himself. Um, in in, the, in the, the first letter that we read to Ephesus, um, he said, I'm the one who's standing in the midst of the church. I'm, I'm in the midst of the candlesticks, and I'm giving my message to my messengers. And then the warning that was attached later in the letter was, if you don't get this right, if you don't remember and repent and begin to do what you used to do, I'm going to remove the candlestick from its place. I'm going to remove my presence from you. I'm going to remove you from my presence. Um, that was the warning. And now he writes to Smyrna and he says this, I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the one that was dead, but I am alive forevermore. And then the promise that he gave at the end of this letter was that the second death has no power over you. That I'm going to give to you a crown of life. I, think, I always think it's interesting that Jesus, and this is true for us right now, right here today. The best thing any one of us can do as a Christian is to focus our heart and our eyes and our mind and our life and our will and every part of who we are back on who Jesus is. When we, under, when, when, when we get a focus on Christ, everything else, in our place, uh, everything else in our life begins to fall in its proper place. We begin to prioritize it as we should. Jesus said, I know your works. I'm looking at you. I know your works by observation. And I listen, it's also true that Jesus knew their works by experience. He knew what they were enduring. He had felt what they endured. He had suffered at the hands of the Romans and the Jews themselves. He knew the environment that, that, that they were working in. He knew that there were brutal Romans and there were Jews that were coming after them um, with vengeance and wrath. I, I, it's interesting to me that Jesus said, I know about this synagogue of people um, who call themselves Jews, but they are not. They are, and he called them the synagogue of Satan. That's pretty, that's pretty strong language. But Jesus is pointing out not a, not a church, but a synagogue full of Jews and calling them literally uh, being under the influence and under the direction of Satan himself. He, he knew that they were, that these people at Smyrna were being subjected to, that they were, they were being, uh, because of the Roman and the Jewish persecution, they were being subjected to abject poverty. You, you can look up the term poverty in this verse, and it means poverty of the lowest degree. It don't mean just moderately poor, it means that they were desperately poor. Many of them were probably losing their jobs. Some of them were probably not being allowed to trade in the public places because they were considered traitors um, to the Roman Empire, traitors to the Jewish nation. These people were experiencing abject poverty, and they were being brutally persecuted by this group of people, the Romans, and by these churches who called themselves Jews, but Jesus said they were the synagogue of Satan. The worst persecution 
that the church has ever had to endure has come at the hands of religious people. Now, the Romans demanded that the Christians worship Caesar. And the Jews were demanding that the church not worship Christ. And, and, and if, you, if you look at the progression of the persecution of the church, the worst persecution that we have ever endured came first at the hands of Judaism. Then it came at the hands of, and I'm not listening, I'm just telling you, I'm giving you a history lesson. Catholicism did everything it could to stop the Reformation. The church was brutalized by the Roman Catholic Church when the Reformation began. The solo scripture, the five, the five solas of the, of, of the Reformation, that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, and for the glory. The Catholic Church had big problems with that Reformation movement. They came against it, and they were... Uh, you do a little bit of history. Read about the kings who were Catholic kings and the queens who were Catholic kings. Remember a queen by the name of Bloody Mary? Catholic. Made it her intention to stop the Protestant Reformation. I forget how many people she beheaded and had strung up and burned at the stake. The worst persecution that the church has ever endured came against people who uh, came from people who thought that they were doing the will of God. Who believed that they were righteous in their efforts. Who called themselves Jews. Who called themselves Christians. But who were instead the synagogue of Satan. Islam. Listen to me. The t today. I, I believe the most persecution the church will endure in this world. Is going to come from, from a corrupt and perverted and twisted government. And from an apostate church. People who call themselves Christians but who are not. You, you, if, you look, if you look around in our community. <clears throat> I know that this is being live streamed but I don't even care anymore. You know I don't even care anymore. You, you folks that are here this morning remember this church. I've told you this before. You are following a cult leader. Who has been compared to Hitler. And the Antichrist. Ralph was there. He heard it. Amen. I went, somebody tagged me in a, in a county commission meeting the other day. In a photo, and I'm like, when I, saw my, when I saw it pop up, where can they live stream? And I'm like, what have I done now? I mean, I'm thinking, my name doesn't come up in another county commission meeting. And I looked, and it was the same old one. But I listened to it again. And I'm like, how can somebody be so deluded and so deceived? That they legitimately believe I'm the enemy. I'm just, I'm just preaching the book. I'm just sticking with the book. I'm just saying what God said. But I'm all of a sudden the an Antichrist. And a cult leader. And all of you are cult followers. And I, I'm telling you, the persecution of the church will come from a corrupt, atheistic, humanistic government and from people who call themselves Christians but are not. But here's some consolation. None of us will ever endure more than Christ endured for us. None of us. We sing a song. 
that has a bridge in it. And one day and I stand here singing, it just registered with me and, it's, and it washes over me still to this day. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. Listen, I will never have to know what separation from God feels like. I will never have to feel what being forsaken by the Father feels like. Why? Because Jesus felt that for us. Jesus said, I know. And, and that means I not only see what's going on with your life, but I've experienced it. That's why the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 tells us that we, that we have to run this race with patience. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. There, there was nothing, 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 nothing enjoyable about the cross. But what the cross won for us, the joy that was set before him, he endured it, even though he despised it. So that he could sit down at the right hand of the Father and wait on us to come into his arms. That, that passage went on to say that, that we need to focus ourselves on him so that we don't get weary. Because we've not yet resisted to the shedding of blood. He is a faithful priest and an intercessor who knows. I, I I don't mean to labor this point, but I, that, you look at that little phrase, I know thy works. I know is all about Jesus. I know what you're doing, and I know from observation, and I know from experience the environment that you're living in. And then he pointed to us, your works. I know how you're living. I know where you're living. I know what it costs to live that way where you're living. But he also knew that they were rich. We're going to get to it when we get to the Laodicean church. But they were a church that thought they were rich. And Jesus said, you're poor. But Jesus looked at this church who was living in abject poverty and brutal persecution. And he, and he looked at this church and said, I know that you're experiencing tribulation. I know that you're experiencing poverty, but you're rich. What did he mean by that? Certainly not rich in material possessions. Probably not rich in health. But I think what Jesus is pointing to is that you're rich in faith. You're rich in peace. You're rich in joy. You're rich in righteousness. You have, you, have the, you have the riches that matter the most. You have the riches that nobody can take away from you. You have the riches that, that, that are not only earthly, but are heavenly. You have eternal riches. And those people that are coming for you don't have those things. So Jesus had nothing but praise. For this church, but he also had a prophecy and a plea to them. And, and both of them spoke to the condition that they were already in. And listen, the prophecy wasn't pleasant. He, Jesus essentially said, your suffering is not over. The devil is behind it. And it's going to get worse. Now that ain't the kind of message we like to hear in church on Sunday morning, is it? Can you imagine this letter being delivered to Smyrna and after everything they already in and enduring? 
And Jesus writes this and he tells them, he commends them for who they are and, 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 and he said, I know everything that you're enduring and I'm telling you that you're rich beyond your wildest imaginations. But then he comes and says, it's going to get worse. I don't know what Jesus meant by 10 days. There, there may have been a point in history in the church at Smyrna where they had 10 of the most intense days that ended in a multitude of lives being lost. I don't know. There's no, I could not find it. I researched it. I've looked. I've studied it. There's all kind of speculation out there. So I'm just going to tell you, I don't know what he meant by 10 days. I, there are some specifics. He said the devil's going to cast some of you into prison. And, and you're going to be tried. And you're going to have tribulation for this amount of time. And you need to be faithful unto death, which means to me that, that at the end of that 10 days, a lot of them, it was going to cost them their life. But if you'll be faithful unto death, I'm going to give you a crown of life. I don't know specifically what that 10 days means. Maybe it was 10 literal days. I've seen some speculating that it was 10 Roman emperors. Um, some that it was 10 days, or it represented just a unit of time. Um, and it could have been 10 years in time. But I, all the research that I found just led me to believe that you're going to have to do this and it's not going away but that there's an end to it. It's a limited time. You're going to have to go through this but if you'll be faithful unto the end. Now, they may have had to endure 10 actual literal days, but what does that mean for us today? That the Lord knows the season that we find ourselves in, but it won't last forever. There's an end to it. There's, there will always be an end to the suffering, the persecution, the tribulation, the poverty of the people that are serving Christ. My mind was drawn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. The Apostle Paul knew all about being persecuted for being a Christian. And, and it's one of my favorite passages of scriptures. He said, our light affliction. Now, this is a man that was shipwrecked, snake. He was shipwrecked, snake beaten, stoned. Um, the Apostle Paul went through it. But what did he say? This is a light affliction. And it's just and it's just temporary. And he called it a moment. Now, I don't know how long Paul's ministry lasted, 30, 40 years. But he said, this is a light affliction. And it's, and it's temporary. It's for a moment. But what it's doing for us is working a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And I, and I think that's what Jesus is trying to say to the church at Smyrna. You hang in there. You hang on. It's, it's bad. You're living in a bad place at a bad time, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. But you hang on. Satan's trying his very best to destroy you. Listen to me. He's still trying to destroy the church. He's always tried to destroy the people of God. He tried it with Israel. He tried it with Jesus. He's trying it today. He tried it with the Catholic Church. Listen, he's tried it over and over and over and over again. But Jesus says to the church, just hang on. Just hang in there. It's bad, and it may get worse, but I'm going to take what, what Satan is doing to you, I'm going to use it. 
Now you can look through the Bible and understand that God uses sufferings to discipline us. God uses sufferings to protect us. God uses sufferings to teach us. God uses sufferings to purify us. And God uses sufferings to exalt us. Because when you suffer for your faith, you become your light shines brighter. You become a living testimony that you really do believe what you profess to believe. Your light shines the brightest when this world is the darkest around you. So God uses all of those things um, uh, for His manifold glory and for our better good. And He said, you're going to have to endure this. You're going to have to hang... You're going to have to hang in and hang on. Um, if, if, if you look at the historical perspective of this church, the Bible scholars who take that literally, that these represent ages of church history, this would represent that period of time between 100 A.D. to 312 A.D. And, and history tells us that there were 5 million Christians who died at the hands of the Jews and the Romans because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what happened to the church during that time? They grew like crazy. Look it up. Look at the history. From the time that John wrote this letter to 312 A.D., when the Romans and the Jews were doing everything they could to stomp out Christianity, it spread like wildfire. What happened at the end of that is that the Roman emperor, Constantine, became a Christ follower and declared that Christianity be the state religion. Imagine that. After 200 years of doing everything that they could to stomp out the church, the Roman Empire became the church. Now... The end of persecution turned out to be a greater tragedy than it was a victory. And things went well for a few hundred years, but then it quickly began to fall apart when the teachings of the Catholic Church became corrupted and they began to profit from it. And you can read the history of that too. But the prophecy wasn't pleasant, and Jesus' plea for them was pretty plain. He said two things Fear none. Be faithful. Fear none. Be faithful. Fear none. Don't fear the sufferings. Don't fear the poverty. Don't fear the people behind it. Don't fear the enemy behind it. Don't fear anything. In fact, the only, the only thing Christians should fear is God himself. Fear none. Be faithful. Keep up the good work. When you, when you look at Jesus, I think he says, um, you consider what my sufferings did for you, accomplished for you, and then you can consider what your sufferings will accomplish for me. And what they have historically always done is when the church suffered, the kingdom expanded. When the church has been prosperous, the kingdom grew. You can see it in our own country. You know what the church's worst enemy has been in the United States of America? Our, 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 our prosperity. Our freedom. In fact, I don't know what it's going to take to make the church stand up, but I think that we're seeing it begin to take place right now. His plea is that you don't fear any of these things and don't fear any of these people. 
um, just hang in and hang on. Psalm chapter 30, verse 5, we quote the last part of it often. In his favor is life. Weeping may endure for the moment, but joy comes in the morning. Hang in there. Hang on. Keep doing what you've been called to do, even if it costs you your life. Be thou faithful unto death, he said. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said, Don't fear, that, don't fear the one which can kill the body. If you have to lay your life down, don't fear the one that can take your life from you, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So even if it, even, even if it goes beyond the poverty, even if it goes beyond the persecution, even if it comes to the place where we have to lay our life down because of the gospel that we proclaim, the truths that we believe, Jesus said, you fear me more than you fear that. Fear me more than you feel, fear them. They can kill your body. They can't touch your soul. And he concludes them with a promise. If you keep living by faith and fearing none but God, even if it costs you your life, I'm going to give you a crown of life. Fear none, be faithful, and here's what I promise. I'm going to give you a crown of life. The, the word is a crown of Zoe. Z-O-E. There are two different terms for life. There are actually more than that. But the two primary terms for life in the Bible are suke, which is a physical breath, and zoe, which is life as God gives life that is abundant and eternal. And so here's what, here's what Jesus says to that church. If you'll be faithful and not fear what's happening to you, I'm going to encircle you with the life that only God can give you. You know what he told them at Lazarus' tomb? I am the resurrection and the life. He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he asked the question, do you believe that? I do. You, you, might, you might, God may give you permission to take my physical life from me, but you can't take what he's given me, and he's given to me eternal life. He's given to me life as God has life. And you can't take that from me. James said in James chapter 1 verse 2, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. You know James, the half-brother of Lord Jesus Christ, was, was, was one of the earliest martyrs of the church. Um, somebody hit him over the head with a club and pushed him down the steps of the temple to take his life from him. And when, when, when Herod found out that that pleased the people, when Herod found out that, hey, I gained some favor by killing James. By having by James's death has brought favor. Let me do some more destruction. Just lit a fire in the church. Just scattered them and made them more effective in their witness. But he also said, "You'll not be hurt." The second death is the great white throne judgment. The first death is the death of your body. Jesus said, "If you'll be faithful." I'm going to give you a crown of life and you will never have to worry about the second death. Because that's not the death of the body, that's the death of the soul. That's the lake of fire. That's when the body and the soul are cast into the lake of the fire. But Jesus said if you're fearless and faithful, that day's not for you. It's for the wicked. It's for those who persecuted you. It's for those that you suffered under. It's for those who yielded themselves as instruments of, of, of wrath 
th those that came against you um, following the desires of Satan, that, it, that's for them, that's not for you. Even if we're poor and persecuted in this life, Jesus said that you are righteous and rewarded in the next. Now, let me just close with this illustration. I know this letter, this is what I felt when I studied it. We've never lived in this place. We had, let's just be honest, we had never lived in that poverty and persecution that they're enduring. So we don't identify with it as clearly as we do some of the others. But that time may be coming. And, and, and now is the time to take the heart what's been written to that church. Um, because when John, when, when John wrote it, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit around A.D. 99, A.D. 95, A.D. 99, scholars usually in that four-window period, four-year window of time is when the revelation was written and handed to the church. The church is still pretty young. I mean, less than 60 years old. Some of the people that saw resurrected Jesus still alive, John being one of them. But persecution is intensified. In the next 200 years, 5 million Christians are going to die. It was probably written ahead of the most intense persecution. Christianity just gaining traction in the world. What was the effect of this letter? How did the church receive it? I don't, I don't know that this is true for any of those churches. I haven't researched it enough. We don't... When, when he said give this, give this letter to the angel of the church, and I believe that's given to the pastor of the church, let the, let the pastor instruct the people, we don't know who the pastors were of these other churches. We know who some of them had been, but we don't know who they were at the time John wrote it. The church at Smyrna is different. We know the pastor of that church. A man by the name of Polycarp. And, and we know that because a letter has been discovered. They were written by the members of that church about their pastor, Polycarp. And, it's, and the book is simply, it's a, a manuscript written by the members of that church called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. We have a historical record that has been discovered of the pastor of the church at Smyrna and how when the Romans came after him, he was an old man, they hid him. The church agreed that if we have to suffer persecution, then we have to suffer, but we don't have to submit ourselves to it willingly so the church hid this old man. He's in his 80s. They tortured two young men, two lads, two, two very young men. They tortured them until um, they told them where, where Polycarp, the bishop of the church of Smyrna, was staying. The Romans went there to gather him up. They found him, an old man. They felt sorry for him. He asked them to give him one hour to pray before they carried him away. They said the prayer meeting went into two hours. And the Roman soldiers that were sent to bring him uh, to the arena, began to feel sorry for the old man. They, and they began to try to plead with him to escape the wrath that he was about to experience. Well, when, when Polycarp uh, appeared before the Roman uh, proconsul, is that how you say it, the Roman leadership, when, when Polycarp appeared to them, when he was brought into the arena, um, the leader of the Romans simply said, this is all written down, if you'll curse Christ, just curse the name of Jesus. I'll release you. This is Polycarp. This is written by the church that he pastored when John wrote this letter. Polycarp said, 86 years have I served him. He has never done me wrong. 
How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Now I did a little math this morning. Polycarp died in 156 A.D. If his letter was written at 99 A.D., Polycarp was 29 years old when he received the letter. And now 55, 56 years later, he's seeing what Jesus warned them about. Be faithful unto death. I'll give you a crown of life. The Roman official um, did not want to kill this old man. And, and, and he was trying to find a way for that old man to escape what was about to come to him. And so he said, just do this, old man. Swear by the genius of the emperor. And that will be sufficient for me to let you go. Swear by the genius of the, the emperor was a way that for him to say, I believe Caesar is right in all that he says and he does. Polycarp replied, if you, if you imagine for a moment that I would do that, then I think you pretend that you don't know who I am. Hear it plainly. I'm a Christian. There were some more entreaties by the Roman leaders. They, 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 they did everything that they could to convince him that he needed to escape what was coming. At, at one point in the conversation, you read all this in that book. I'm just giving you excerpts. At one point in that conversing back and forth with him, they said, do you do know that we can put you in that arena and that you'll be torn limb by limb by those lines? a spectator sport. Polycarp replied, bring them forth. I would change my mind if it meant going from the worst to the better, but not to change from the right to the wrong. By that time, the Roman official's patience was gone, and he said this, I'll have you burned with fire. I'll have you burned with fire, burned alive at the stake. Polycarp's last reply was this. You threaten fire that burns for an hour and is over, but the judgment on the ungodly is forever. The fire was prepared. The book said as the, as the flames began to climb up his body, that he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, I bless you that you have deemed me worthy of this day and hour that I might take a portion of the martyrs in the cup of Christ. Among these may I today be welcomed before thy face as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. You think Polycarp heard the word? Believed it with everything in him. Would not be denied that crown of life. And that escape the second death. Yeah. Listen to me. When you breathe your last breath on the face of this earth. However that comes. Whether it comes through some natural means. 
through some kind of accident or through persecution, through the suffering just because you're a Christian, to hear him say, well done. We'll make it all worthwhile. Just one glimpse of him in glory will the tolls of life depart. Let's stand together. <coughs> Lord, we confess this morning that we don't know anything of the sufferings that the early church had to endure. And while we are profoundly grateful for the liberties and the blessings that you have bestowed upon us, in this place that we live and in this time that we live, we also confess this morning that it's made our faith weak made us weak we've become too quiet too compliant not looking very much different things beginning to turn around us in a different direction. Where once pastors and churches were respected and honored, there's a different kind of wind blowing today. And I don't know where that's going to take us. believing 
and obedient. It's right now. And so help us as your people to stand and be counted today at whatever cost for your glory and for our eternal good. Hey, yo. Uh...